Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Marsha Walker-McWilliams about her biography of the union leader and civil rights activist Addie Wyatt, entitled Reverend Addie Wyatt, Faith in the Fight for Labor, Gender, and Racial Equality. Marsha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're happy to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Sure. So, um... Let's see, where can I start? Uh, I am a native of the Midwest. I'm currently living in Houston, Texas, but I'm originally from the Midwest, born in Ohio and raised in Michigan. Um, So you can probably see some of that love for the Midwest um, that comes throughout the book. Uh, And my mother is actually one of the inspirations behind the book because she was very active in the labor movement, uh, particularly with the Service uh, Employees International Union. And so that was really kind of how I got interested in the topic of African-American women in the labor movement was because it was such a big presence and a theme uh, in my own home growing up. You mentioned that your mother was one of the inspirations for the book. Could you uh, explain what the others were? Yeah, and so the other inspirations actually came um, from college. Uh, I studied African-American studies and also social policy in college, Um, and particularly in African-American studies, I learned a lot about um, some of the major themes. But one of the things that was very interesting to me, particularly when I took a class about um, African-Americans and work, was that there was very little scholarship about African-American women and their experiences in the workplace. And so combined with my own sort of um, personal background with that topic and then seeing this kind of lack of information within the literature um, about African-American women, particularly within the 20th century uh, in terms of their experiences in the workplace, it just kind of got me thinking, wow, this could be a really kind of untapped source of knowledge and a great project. And so those two areas, kind of the academic inquiry, but also the personal background, helped to really fuel this project. And as you mentioned in the book, it was also one in which you had the opportunity to speak with your subject, which is something that not many historians can necessarily say. Yes, um, it was such a wonderful treat to be able to actually speak um, with Addie Wyatt. She actually passed away in 2012 before the book um, was published, so she was not able to see the final project, but I was able to visit with her several times. Um, And probably the best interview came from our first meeting together. And so it was such um, just a wonderful addition to the project to be able to ask her questions about her journey and also just to listen to her kind of reflect back on decades of activism and leadership within the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and also within her church. So to be able to have that and to be able to have her say, oh, you know, you should talk to so-and-so or, you know, you should talk to this person, to be able to get that level um, of knowledge, but then also that level of appreciation for the project um, was really wonderful. You describe quite a journey uh, in terms of her life, and you begin with where it began for her, which was in Mississippi. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about her uh, early life and family and, uh, and the influence that had upon her as she became a, uh, an adult. 
Sure. So Eddie Wyatt was born uh, in Brookhaven, Mississippi, um, which is if anyone's ever been to Mississippi, it's probably uh, almost an hour south of Jackson. Um, and it's a very small town, and she was born there, um, grew up until she was about six years old. Uh, and her family at the time, and it was, um, I'll backtrack a little bit just to talk about kind of sources and the historian's journey. Um, this was actually a really great part of the project that I enjoyed was being able to travel to Mississippi and get into the archives in Brookhaven and in Jackson and really find traces of her family through the census, through court records and documents. Um, and a lot of this was history that she herself had forgotten. Um, and so it was really great to be able to do that and to track that um, within the archives. But she did grow up. She was the second of what would be eight children and the oldest daughter to Ambrose and Maggie Cameron. And she also lives with her maternal grandmother, who she was named after. And by all accounts, both from oral histories, from documents in the archives, it appears that they led a pretty decent life um, in Mississippi in spite of um, some of the things you would think about in terms of Jim Crow at the time, in terms of lynching. Those aspects were there. But a lot of her childhood memories kind of came from just recalling playing with children in the neighborhood and recalling her younger siblings being born and the love that she felt in her family, discussing her earliest moments in church. And so you get to see sort of a lot of those aspects of her life, right, sort of the early exposure to faith, um, early exposure to family and the need for family unity. That's all there uh, in the early chapter, and then it's kind of bookended by this really tragic moment um, that happens wherein her father, who is a tailor, gets into an altercation with his white employer. Uh, and because he struck his white employer, there was a fear that, you know, there would be some kind of reprisal against him that he might actually lose his life. So her father essentially gets on a train that night headed towards Chicago where they had family, and several months later the family joins them. So there's this really kind of interesting moment where her life is going to change, um, and so that's kind of the, the experience that you get in terms of thinking about Mississippi. And it's interesting because I return back to Mississippi at the end of the book. So there's this really interesting kind of arc narrative that happens. One of the things I thought was interesting about that uh, transition you described from Mississippi to Chicago, which is the degree to which it really was a step down for the family, how they were able not just to carve out a life. They didn't just have a life in Mississippi, but uh, in terms of their community, they uh, uh, Maggie was a teacher. Uh, you, you, as you mentioned, Ambrose was a tailor and they get to Chicago and it's not that they're able to, you know, smoothly enter into uh, the community at that level, but they have to start from scratch. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at the scholarship on the Great Migration, because this is the period we're talking about, it was in 1930 that um, her father left and the family joined him in Chicago, much of the migration narratives kind of talk about a search for a better way of life, be it, you know, freedom from Jim Crow or freedom from lynching, better economic prospects. And one of the interesting things that you see with Addie Wyatt's story is that, in fact, as you mentioned, Mark, it was sort of this step down. All of a sudden, they're not living in their own home with their own yard. They're living in this giant um you know, kind of building in a kitchenette with their family members. Um, they don't have livestock, right, that they can go out and get eggs from the chicken. All of a sudden, there are all these things that they have to consider being overcrowded. 
um, Maggie was unable to find work as a teacher because she didn't have the credentials necessary um, in Chicago, let alone, you know, the issues of her race. So it was a really sort of difficult time in which the family had to deal with really stark poverty that they hadn't had to deal with before. And so it's thinking about kind of that relationship of race in Mississippi and then poverty in Chicago, these were some of the sort of the kernels, right, the seeds of Addie Wyatt's later interest in fighting for um, the rights of working people and the rights of racial minorities. One of the things that comes across in that early chapter as well, though, is her identity and her self uh, and her sense of self. And I was thinking about one anecdote in particular that you described when she, is, this is back when she's in Mississippi, and you described how when they were playing house, she would always have the coveted role of being the mother. And you, you point out how unlike kids when they usually play house and they, they make up food, pretend food out of mud and, and whatever is in their environment, she actually took the game a step further. Yes. Yes, she did, and it cost her. Um, she preferred to have real food served on her, you know, playhouse table. And so I talk about a story where, you know, she goes to the grocery store and purchases real food on her mother and father's tab to play this game of house. And so her parents find out, and of course, all mayhem breaks out. She has to kind of answer for this, but it didn't stop her. And so there's that kind of angle of determination, but there's also this side of Annie Wyatt where she's always wanting um, kind of the better side of things, right? She wants the real food. Uh, I talk about later in the book how much she puts into her physical appearance in terms of always wanting to be styled in the latest fashions. And so she's such a kind of complicated figure in that way, and I wanted to put in as many of those stories as possible, also to humanize her. I think that comes to those uh, personality traits that you described come across in terms of the education that she pursues. And mm-hmm. that's where you have this interesting explanation about how when she's in high school, she is doing a lot of things that aspire to that uh, better life. And she seems also determined not to get sidetracked by uh, a relationship. And yet it's in high school, as you explained, that she meets her husband. Absolutely. Um, and the, the, I, I talk a lot about the, the kind of courtship between herself and her husband, Claude Wyatt Jr., uh, and they meet in high school and they are high school sweethearts and would eventually be married for almost 70 years. He actually passed away in, I believe it was 2009, so a few years prior to Eddie Wyatt. But yeah, she's very kind of determined to live her life. She was interested in going to college. Um, but then she meets this young man, and she falls in love, and they get married. And uh, Claude Wyatt Jr. was also from a very impoverished family, yet he was also someone who had goals. He was also someone who took a lot of pride in his appearance and was even nicknamed Pretty Boy. So the two of them sort of have this notion that on their own together, perhaps they would be able to have a better life, more financial security um, than they had with their parents. And so it sparks this sort of grand love affair, but also this partnership that continues on for almost 70 years. One of the things you make clear early at this point in the book is that how difficult it was for them to achieve that in the context of their times. Uh, you described 
so what what what, Cla- what Claude went through, but of, but of course your focus is on Addie, and I thought it was very interesting uh, how the, how she was unable to uh, exercise the skills that she had acquired uh, that that she had used, that she had practiced when she was in high school, and how she eventually, but nonetheless, that determination also came through in terms of how she was able to find the job that started her on this very long arc of of, of union activism. Certainly. I mean, there were so many different barriers. I mean, first of all, they were young. They were essentially teenagers um, wanting to strike out on their own and find housing and um, find good jobs. And so they had their age as an issue. Um, race was an issue in terms of the what kinds of jobs they could get, what pay they can get. And for Addie, there was this added barrier of being a woman. Um, and so she was already kind of typecasted into certain jobs, clerical jobs. Um, but then she found that a lot of those clerical jobs went to white women and not necessarily um, African-American women. And so there's this moment where you really see her kind of butting up against a lot of these societal structural issues um, that are hindering her ability to actually go out and have the life that she wants to have. And so I sort of walked through that period of struggling for employment and then finally landing um, in the union, right, in the story about how she – you know, is trying to be a butcher, but she's very small. She cannot handle the meat. She cannot handle the equipment. Uh, And she sees these women waiting outside of an office, and she asks them what they're doing, and they say, well, we're here to take the typing test, to be secretaries. And so she sits down with them. She takes the test. She passed the test and thinks that on her first day she's going to be a secretary in the front office. She arrives, and they tell her, oh, no, there's been a mistake. You were hired, but black women are hired to work on the floor. They're not hired to work in the front office. And so she goes through these amazing kind of ups and downs, but ironically, it's on the shop floor where she's going to gain so many of the skills um, that she will need to kind of make this journey towards fighting not only for herself, but also for her fellow workers. I was wondering if you could explain briefly what sort of work she did on the shop floor in the uh, at, 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 at Armor and Company. Certainly. So Addie Wyatt um, got a job working for Armor and Company, which was one of the five big um, meatpacking companies within the Chicago area and also nationwide as well. And so the job that she um, originally got was on the shop floor pretty much um, – She would be peeling potatoes. She would be filling cans. So very kind of fast-paced work. And much of this um, effort would go towards providing food um, for the U.S. forces in World War II. But she was pretty much on the shop floor um, uh, trimming bacon, peeling potatoes, basically sort of um, high-volume, fast-paced factory work is what she would be doing. The conditions that you described were really uh, very dangerous. There's a lot of blades going around. The floor is slick with with, uh, blood and animal fat. And it was not an easy job by any stretch of the imagination. No, it was not. I mean, if you... You know, often when you talk about meatpacking, many people will think back to Upton Sinclair's work, The Jungle, um, kind of describing the really horrific conditions that you would see in meatpacking. And although there had been some improvements by the time that Eddie Wyatt gets there in the 1940s, it still is not a clean place to work. It is a very dangerous place to work with um, fast equipment, sharp equipment, uh, and then also just the difficult conditions, right, the slipperiness 
that you could have on the floor. Um, many workers would suffer from carpal tunnel syndrome because they had to repeat these tasks over and over again for minutes, um, and they would be timed sometimes by um, shift supervisors. So it was a very sort of stressful condition. And then you had the fact that within um, Armour and Company and many meatpacking plants at the time, the workforce was segregated, so there were certain jobs that would be considered jobs for blacks versus whites, and they were also um, divided by gender. So even within that, black men might find themselves in parts of the foundries or the areas where um, they're working with the meat that hasn't been processed very much at all. So there's lots of raw product. Um, it's very dangerous with the tools, whereas white men might be able to find more supervisory positions or positions in the front office. For white women, if they weren't clerical and working in the front office, they could be working in some of the, the end periods where they're working with meat or food that's pretty much much been processed and almost packaged, and they're just kind of formalizing that process, whereas you would see black women working more with the raw products. So the, the kind of gendered and racial landscape within these meatpacking plants um, was also something that Wyatt would have become aware of in terms of thinking about, you know, how do you fight not only for yourself and advocate for yourself, but for others to make um, the positions more equitable. And it's hard to imagine this, but in those conditions that you described, this was all, these were already conditions in which you had a union, the United Packing yes. House Workers of America. Mm -hmm. Yes, these were unionized positions. Uh, and so it, it really goes to show you how much work uh, had to be done, even though they had gone through the process um, you know, of formally accepting the union. And the really interesting thing is that um, on the shop floor, you actually made more money because the front office positions weren't unionized. So though they were safer, they were cleaner, they may be in some way, shape, or form more dignified than shop floor work, you're actually making more money uh, on the shop floor. And so when you really kind of you know, peel the curtain back and look at it. Um, there were definitely things that the United Packing House Workers of America Union was doing to try to address these issues, but yet there was still so much more work to be done. And what's notable is that the United Packing House Workers of America, or I'll just shorten it and say UPWA, was actually one of the most progressive unions at the time. And so they had um, maternally leave for women. So when Addie Wyatt has her children, she's able to leave her job and then return. Uh, they actually had African-Americans and women in some of the leadership ranks. Um, so even though you can see sort of all of the problems and issues, the really interesting thing is that this is actually one of the more progressive places. And yet, as you describe, she has to leave uh, the uh packing house in during the war so that uh, she and her husband can move into this new neighborhood that had been established for uh, African-Americans uh, in the Chicago area. Yes. Um, what happens is that uh, Addie Wyatt's mother passes away uh, in 1944, and her father is not in the best condition uh, to be able to take care of his younger children because of his alcoholism, because of his cyclical unemployment and other issues. And so Addie Wyatt promises to take in her um, five of her younger siblings in addition to the two children that she and Claude already have. And so they need housing, and they need housing bad, and they need it fast. And so it just so happens at the time that because of 
um, the war because of expansions in public housing, um, there's an opportunity to move into Old Guild Gardens, um, which is on the far south side of Chicago and was intended to be a um, public housing project for African-American families um, with heads of households who were working with the war effort. And so Addie Wyatt um, eventually found employment that would qualify for that, and her husband, Claude, was um, in the Navy. And so the two of them were able to get into housing in All Girls Gardens, um, which still exists to this day in Chicago, but is um, very different from what it started out. And it's really important to know that during this period of the early 1940s, public housing was actually considered some of the best housing that one could get in the city, right? It was spacious. It was clean. You often had your own front door as opposed to the kind of kitchenette living um, that you would see in other parts of Chicago. And so people who had public housing sort of looked upon themselves pride, um, and others kind of looked at them like they had essentially kind of won the lottery in some respects. Uh, so she and her family move into Old Guild Gardens, and I talk about kind of the autonomous community that comes um, with that, but then also some of the setbacks as well. It really is at this point in uh, Wyatt's life when she is, you know, has a family, it really seems to be engaged in a lot of social activities. And you describe her, how she is undergoing a bit of a faith journey during this period. And she's also involved in the gospel music scene, which, as you explained, is under is in the middle of a renaissance in Chicago during this time. Certainly. Uh, and that's one of the things, uh, very often when I've met people who've known Wyatt um, within her labor circles or women's uh, rights circles, they had no idea that she was a gospel pianist and that she had actually accompanied Mahalia Jackson. Um, and so they're like, wow, it's this other part of her, right, the, the side of her faith and her religious practice um, that I also wanted to be able to tell because it really does inform a lot of the work that she does as an activist and as a leader. Uh, and so I really enjoyed kind of digging into the gospel music scene in the 1940s, the 1950s Chicago, uh, and finding out more about um, the Wyatt Singers, which was a group that she, her husband, her brother, and several others were a part of. They performed in the gospel circuit. But then also the Wyatt Choral Ensemble that she and her husband found in All Guild Gardens, which was catered towards African-American youth in the community as a way to give them something positive to do. Um, and they sang around the city, gained the praises of the head of the Chicago Housing Authority and even the mayor of the city. Um, so it was it was really a treat to be able to dig into that part um, of her life as well. And yet she does this at the same time as returning back to uh, working in the uh, in, in the stockyards and working in the slaughterhouses. And, and it really seems to be this period at which her union act, she becomes much more involved as a union activist. And I was wondering if you could explain that transition and what it is that she's doing in the late 40s and early 50s and, and how that begins to change the focus of her professional life. Certainly. That's a, a wonderful question. I think often when you sort of hear the stories of these sort of great leaders and great figures, it almost seems as if they were always that way. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book was really explain her trajectory. She starts out benefiting from the union, right? She's able to leave, to have her child, to come back to her job. She benefits from some of the wages 
um, that she's able to get, but she had no desire to actually be a union leader, to actually go out and organize. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of interesting interesting things that happen um, that pushes her down that pathway. She befriends Charles Hayes, who also lives in Algill Gardens, and he has sort of a staunch labor background. And so he becomes a key influence in terms of getting her to think about um, the movement that she can be a part of. She's also elected to attend a conference that the UPWA has um, that's about sort of um, bringing people together to fight for better wages. Um, and she talks about how important that moment was of stepping into this room and seeing people um, in the labor movement from different backgrounds, white, black, Hispanic, men, women, um, from all over the region, and how she's impacted by that um, and sees that, you know, she can't just benefit from the union. She also has to ensure that it survives. And so yet and still, she's still not ready to become a leader. And so it's actually other women, older women in her labor union who say, Addie, everything that you're talking about, you know, all the things that you experienced from this conference, we think you can do that. We think you can be a leader. And so she throws her hat in the ring to become vice president of her local union, and she didn't even vote for herself because she thought she had no chance. But lo and behold, there were enough people who sort of saw within her some of these leadership characteristics and abilities, and she was elected vice president. So it's not necessarily because she was so gung-ho about it or actively sought it out, but really because others saw in her some of those characteristics. And I think a lot of that came from her faith background, um, organizing and pulling together the Wyatt Choral Ensemble, and just having been in those labor circles, uh, I think she really benefited from others seeing in her those leadership abilities. One of the things that you do uh, at this uh, at this point in the book is you describe the experiences that she had, how she is now in a position of leadership, and it's a time where women and African Americans are not necessarily in this position, and yet she's both. And you describe how sometimes people didn't take her seriously, and it might even necessarily not have been a matter of uh, her race or her uh, gender, but the fact that they would know her and they'd say that you're not one of these big hulking guys, you don't, you know, you're, you're, uh, you don't have a great, you don't use profanity in your language, and there's this idea that that they questioned whether she could be respected by the people she was dealing with in this leadership position because she was a very, uh, you know, devout, uh, very, uh, proper uh, uh, African-American woman. And, and yet you explained how it was that she was not only taken seriously, but quite successful in this role that she now assumed. Certainly. I mean, there were, I had to actually decide which stories I was going to put in the book <laughs> because there were so many, like there were some really great ones I had to cut. Um, but just really interesting the way that, you know, physically, again, she was a very slight woman, very small. She could often be found praying uh, at work, praying in the union hall. Uh, she, again, as you said, did not use profanity. She was not one of these, you know, big labor men. She didn't smoke. She didn't attend some of their 
you know, um, activities where they would sort of get together and rabble-rouse and do all of those things. And so in some ways she was sort of considered an outsider. And again, as you mentioned, I think it was people questioning whether or not at the negotiating table she could hold her own weight and others would really respect her. Uh, But I think because she understood that and because people were constantly kind of waging that critique against her, she knew how to combat it. And she knew how to sort of get down to the basics of things. And she would also call people on it. So she talks about how she enters one negotiating um, deliberation and the men on the other side who work for the company are like, oh, you know, here comes the beauty queen. And she immediately said to them, I've got beauty, but I've got brains too. Now let's get down to business. And so even though she was sort of considered this proper woman and would wear high heels and and skirt suits to go negotiate or to be on the picket lines, she always held this demeanor of, I'm here to work. And are you going to work with me? Are you going to work against me? Or are we going to find a way to move forward? And I think because she sort of had that deliberative stance, uh, that helped to make her very successful. And she often tried to figure out what it was that people cared about and to draw some kind of connection to that. And so she was very big on sort of pushing for this solidarity. You care about work, I care about work. You care about wages, I care about wages. And so sort of finding that common ground was a key strategy that uh, she used. As you described, though, this period of her life is not just focused on union activism, but she's also very much involved in this emerging civil rights movement in the 1950s. And I was wondering if you could explain how the role that she played in that and how she uh, balanced those demands upon her time, which must have been enormous. She's a full-time union activist, and yet the civil rights movement also is taking up a great deal of her time as well. Absolutely. And it's really through the labor movement that she came to the civil rights movement. And I think that's a very, very important point, one that I wanted to drive home in the book, but one that I'll talk about a little bit here as well, is that um, you had allies within the labor movement uh, who really helped to support the civil rights movement, both financially, but then also legally in terms of helping to provide legal advice, helping to provide bodies um, on the ground. And so, again, kind of through this progressive union that Wyatt was able to come to the labor movement. And so how she gets involved, really one of the first ways that she gets involved is through raising money throughout her district for the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, The United Packing House Workers of America was the first union to invite Dr. King to come to Chicago and hosted him a full 10 years before he comes back later uh, (coughs) in the 60s. And so Wyatt um, raised about $8,000 out of the $11,000 that her district raised. So she was a key fundraiser and directly sort of handed off that check to Martin Luther King Jr. And that's how the two of them established a friendship and a relationship that later grew as a result um, of their faith uh, as well. But she was very active in sort of raising funds throughout the UPWA and also raising awareness for civil rights issues. It was really interesting about Eddie Wyatt, Charles Hayes, and other activists um, within the UPWA is that they not only supported the Southern Civil Rights Movement, but they also addressed civil rights issues in Chicago. 
around fair housing, around um, access to hospitals and health care. Uh, and so they were very kind of active in terms of tying together um, what was happening in the South in terms of African Americans fighting for um, equal rights, but also in the city of Chicago. How is it that she then also becomes more involved in the growing movement in the 1950s and 60s for women's rights? Because is that a natural outgrowth of her uh, civil rights activism? Or is it that uh, she, as it develops, she decides to, that that's important to her as well, that she needs to be more involved in that too? I think it's a little bit of both. And I also think it's the fact that the particular faith um, that she had, the particular Christian um, bent that she had, and also the impact of her mother and her grandmother, was that she was always around strong women. And so she never sort of divorced the fact that, yes, she was black, yes, she was a worker, but she was also a woman. Uh, and so she was never really able to disentangle those things and say, oh, well, I feel like I'm in this position because of this particular identity. She was very upfront and forthcoming with the fact that all of these identities, um, being a worker, being a woman, being an African-American, worked hand in hand. And so through the union, she often came into barriers because of her status as a woman, sort of not being taken seriously as a leader, um, seeing the disparities and wages that could happen as a result of that. Uh, and I think all of her, her activism and her work in these different movements sort of made it almost a natural progression to be involved um, in the growing movements for women's rights. Um, she was very active organizing women and women's activities throughout the UPWA. And when her um, union leader, Ralph Helstein, was tapped um, to serve on the President's Commission on the Status of Women under President Kennedy, he didn't have the time. And so he singled out Addie Wyatt as the most active woman in the UPWA who he could send to that commission. And so that's where she really kind of gets catapulted onto the national scene and begins to network and work with other women who are active in the labor movement. So I think it's it, the labor piece is very central because it provides these opportunities and these avenues to get involved in civil rights and women's rights. But I think Addie Wyatt was also acutely aware of the impact that both her gender and her racial status had um, on her pathway. One of the things you do in the book that I thought was particularly fascinating was you explain how these uh, different uh, commitments, these these different activist goals were not always complimentary. And I thought it was particularly telling when it came to the issue of uh, activism for uh, women and, Af and, and, and African Americans within the labor movement, because there you see this tension between, on the one hand, her support for the seniority system, which mm -hmm. she, and, and on, on, on the one hand, and at the other hand, this growing uh, uh, discontent among women and minorities in the labor movement as they're beginning to uh, assume a greater presence and how they find that for them, the seniority system is an obstacle and not necessarily the path to uh, authority and status that it has been uh, to a degree for Addie Wyatt. Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of um, tension, again, um, as you said, 
within that system, right, of one, wanting to respect seniority um, and the amount of time that a worker has spent on the job, at the same time recognizing that seniority is basically preserving a system wherein women and minorities are not able to make it to the top, um, to make it into different um, wage brackets. And so, you know, those are some of the things that Annie Wyatt, um, as a leader within the movement, has to confront. And she ultimately sort of makes the decision that while seniority is important, she also supported affirmative action policies that would help put um, women and people of color into those places, in part because the labor movement itself was also changing. And so you were beginning to see many more workers of color and many more women um, becoming active in the movement and also getting jobs. So for her, it wasn't just, um, you know, wanting to make this um, leap for no reason, but also seeing that labor's constituency was changing. Um, and so that was a key moment of tension and it was certainly one that cost her because when she supports and becomes a founding member of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists in 1972 and the Coalition of uh, Labor Union Women in 1974, both of those organizations are initially seen as a threat to the established labor movement. Uh, so she, she, she paid some prices. Um, for her activism and her belief in really wanting to fight collectively um, for women and for workers of color. I was thinking that uh, tension also plays out in uh, a broader sense in the issue about the ERA. You describe that, how that, that, that uh, um, simultaneous issue is out there in the 1970s. And it is, again, another example of that trade-off. Do women pursue the idea of equality or do they continue to call for protective measures to uh, try to secure their status against discrimination and prejudice? Absolutely. Um, the Equal Rights Amendment was one, and I, before kind of delving into Addie Wyatt's life, I actually didn't know very much about the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, hadn't come up very often by classes, uh, and so once I started sort of getting into her life in the 1970s and seeing how central the Equal Rights Amendment was, um, it really kind of opened my eyes to um, what a divisive issue it was. And again, she was not afraid to take a stand one way or the other, and she ultimately comes down um, as a proponent for the Equal Rights Amendment. But you're absolutely right. It definitely drove a wedge because there were some women um, – and many women within the Coalition of Labor Union Women who said, no, we need protective labor legislation. We need to be recognized <laughs> as women who are workers. And we don't want to be on equal footing um, under the law with men because we don't want to be um, held to certain legal standards um, in relation to that. Uh, whereas Addie Wyatt, uh, her side being a proponent of the Equal Rights Amendment was, well, no one's safe under the current system. Men suffer, women suffer. So what we need is true equality, right? That that will limit um, the inequalities that you see in terms of positions, still having men's jobs versus women's jobs, in terms of wages, in terms of ability to access um, health care. And so why it came down on the side of the Equal Rights Amendment, but there were certainly many, many women within labor who were against it because they feared that their protective status would be overruled and that they would be out of a job. At the same time as she's become this very 
a prominent figure. She's featured in Time magazine in 1975. She also has uh, undergone a... Uh, she's also undertaken the effort to become an ordained minister. And so you have this... Uh, period which she is not just a, a, a deeply uh, you know, committed to her faith, but she's also assuming a position of leadership within it at the same time as she's assuming this position of leadership within this broader women's rights movement nationally. Yes. Uh, and this, was, again, was um, the chapter where I really sort of delved into her um, <coughs> to become an ordained minister in the Church of God. Uh, and everything that comes with that was probably it's probably my favorite chapter uh, in the book because it takes up precisely these issues of what it's like to become ordained um, and some of the issues that she faces there in terms of being a woman, but then also how she attempts to use that platform of saying, yes, I am an ordained minister, and saying, here is my particular theological understanding of equality. And she did not shy away from, you know, when she's in labor circles, when she's in women's rights circles, kind of talking about God, talking about her faith and her theological belief in the equality of men and women. And when she's in the church, she did not shy away from talking about the Equal Rights Amendment or talking about discrimination against women. And so for her, I think she really used... um, her platform to be able to address these particular social issues, the discrimination of women, um, the fight for equal rights. Uh, And again, this is something that costs her because there are those within the religious movement who feel that her um, involvement in the women's movement goes against what she should be doing as a Christian. Uh, And so she constantly has to kind of defend the stances that she takes, and she really talks about the personal toll that it takes on her. She and her husband, Claude Wyatt, um, founded a church called the Vernon Park Church of God, which still exists today um, in Chicago and is now being pastored um, by their nephew. But she talks about how people had various different views of her. Some believed that she needed to just be um, the first lady of the church and the preacher's wife and be seen but not heard. Um, There were others who sort of wondered why she was always, you know, after a service, heading off somewhere. She's like, well, I'm going to work. I've got a union meeting. And so she talks about sort of the toll that it took, um, you know, sort of having all of these critiques waged at her and people believing that she had a certain place. Um, But I think she was very sort of strong in her own faith and believed that this was her charge to go out and do this work, not only within the church, but in the union, in the civil rights movement, in the women's movement. She had so many different commitments in her life. And and I love the fact that she undertakes one more in the 1980s when she gets involved in this campaign for this historic election of Harold Washington to uh, the mayoralty of Chicago. Yes, she does. Um, And this is also a a chapter I really enjoyed um, because it blended a different narrative to Harold Washington's election. Um, Very often in the historiography, there's discussion of some of the key central figures 
um, the impact of Jesse Jackson, the impact of Lou Palmer and others um, who helped with the election, but there was very little about labor, very little about clergy, very little about women who were so central to the election of Harold Washington. And so again, using Addie Wyatt as this sort of vessel to be able to talk about these various different groups and how they helped really to elect Harold Washington and how Harold Washington then really, once he became mayor, um, you know, founded the Women's Commission, employed more women um, in his cabinet and in his administration than ever before, uh, was really important. It's a narrative that I really wanted to make sure got in there because the work um, of women in this movement to electoral Washington cannot be underscored, nor the work of the clergy and those that supported him uh, while he was in office. And there's actually um, other work now coming out, full-length manuscripts are going to be on the way, particularly about the impact of women in the Harold Washington administration. What was her? What were her final years like when she retired from uh, her from the union? When she and, and, uh, basically left a lot of the day to day activism. What did, did she stay committed, or did she take a well earned rest? Mm-hmm. She definitely stayed committed. Her last sort of major journey um, was in 1990 to support. Um, workers, predominantly African-American women in the Mississippi Delta in the um, Delta Pride catfish strike. Uh, And at that time, she was using a cane and had lots of difficulties walking. Um, And after that, she suffered a stroke. Um, She had another bout with cancer. And her husband, Claude Wyatt, actually um, had Alzheimer's. So there were a lot of kind of physical and health issues that sidelined her, but she continued to maintain a presence in Chicago. Um, She was a mentor for the Chicago chapter of the Coalition of Labor Union Women. She became a mentor for other workers' um, organizations, and she continued to kind of talk about her story, even though um, she had a lot of difficulties with mobility. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Certainly. So I have shifted um, a bit and I'm doing lots of different work around sort of civic engagement and leadership. And I think a lot of that comes from um, looking at Eddie Wyatt's journey into these various different movements. So um, I'm currently working um, at the Center for Civic Leadership at Rice University um, and doing more kind of delving into civic leadership and civic engagement, what that means in our current climate. I'm also doing work on um, the fast food workers movement, the Fight for 15, and sort of looking at um, a larger legacy of African-American employment activism up to the current time. And there's some other projects um, that I'm interested in as well, but I'm really just kind of taking a well-earned rest myself (laughs) after working uh, on this book project um, for grad school and after that. So it's it's been great, um, the acceptance of this book um, and a lot of really great reviews. So I'm kind of taking my time moving forward. <laughs> well, I hope you don't take too much time because I can't wait to see what you're going to produce next. Marsha Walker McWilliams, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you.